0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host Rituparna today and I'm going to be in conversation with Hannah Gold and Gwen McCallan. Well, Gwen is an oral historian who studies the impact of trauma in religious narratives, currently a senior lecturer in Japanese studies at the University of New England and Ivan Country, Australia. Aside from co editing the 2023 published Aromas of Asia, Exchanges history's Threats, he has authored the book Dangerous Memory in Nagasaki Prayers, Protest, and Catholic Survivor Narratives, which was published by Rutledge in 2022. Gwen is a 2022 Jap- Japan Foundation Fellow and National Library of Australia Fellow. Hannah Gold is a cultural anthropologist studying religion, materiality, and discarding with a regional focus on Northeast Asia and Australia. Holding degrees from the University of Melbourne and Oxford University, she is currently the Melbourne Postdoctoral Fellow in Arts within the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne for the project Mobile Mortality Transnational Futures of Death Care in the Asia-Pacific. Hannah currently serves as the president of the Australian Death Studies Society and is the author of When Death Falls Apart, published by University of Chicago Press in 2023, and a co-editor of Aromas of Asia, Penn State University Press 2023. In today's conversation, we are going to discuss their recently co-edited book, Aromas of Asia, Exchanges Histories which has been edited by the two of them and published by the Pennsylvania University Press in 2023. Uh, Gwen and Hannah, I welcome you to this conversation and thank you so much for taking time to join me on NBN. Thank you for having us. Right, so uh, let me begin by asking you to talk a little bit about the context in which this edited volume emerged. Yeah, so like
0: many things, this book actually began uh during COVID, or well, just before COVID and all of the lockdowns. Um, I had recently come back from doing some field work uh, in Japan um, and really started to think about the role that smell and in particular uh, incense plays uh, in how people craft a continuing relationship to the dead. So my kind of background being in studies of death and dying. Um, and I had the opportunity to run into Gwyn, um, a colleague of mine and at a cafe, and we just got to talking really about, um, you know, different things that were interesting us, different theoretical terms. Um, our work is quite different in some ways, but it has lots of interesting overlaps around Japan and death and memory and mourning. Um, and it, it emerged that, you know, this this idea of smell Um, more and more captured our imagination and was also something maybe that we hadn't considered before and hadn't theorised before very much. So we really sort of take that more broadly to think about the role of smell within Asia um, and how it shapes histories and cultures in that way.
2: Yeah, and I might just add to that as well, that I guess um, one of those things that's really difficult in some ways is um, putting words to describe um, olfaction and, and smell. And so um, I guess that we were we were thinking about trying to start a conversation, and it's certainly not um, not covering all all parts of Asia, but it's it's um, a beginning in terms of um, this kind of this kind of work that we and and I particularly coming into it a bit newer than Hannah, I think I, I've really enjoyed um, uh, working on this.
1: Right, I think the context in which an edited volume is put together is really important, so it's uh very interesting to know your side of the story so uh mm-hmm. of course we have to talk about the pandemic and uh, what do you think has been the role that covid-19 played in shaping our uh, sensory ideas
0: i think it's really interesting i mean one of the more underreported or maybe uh lesser known but <laughs> slightly terrifying consequences of covid-19 is a loss of smell um and a loss of taste And one of the interesting things about, I suppose, the broader reporting on that, you know, as we were doing this book, suddenly, you know, everything came about smell. So we began thinking about um, COVID through smell as well. And, you know, the way that people talked about a loss of smell was often um, really downplayed like oh this is a sad thing that happens to people but it's not the most important characteristic right it's not like they've lost their sight or it's not like they've lost their hearing right this is a, a minor a relatively minor affliction um, at least is how it seemed to be reported and and how indeed patients who've suffered anosmia uh, a lack of smell have have talked about it um and we kind of took that as a as jumping off point actually for the beginning of the book for the introduction is is thinking about like why do we downplay smell so much? Um, but then also in the opposite, actually, why smell is so important for placing us in social worlds, for, you know, creating our social networks, our cosmologies, our how we, you know, interact with the world Um and so, you know, we kind of start with this idea of a loss of smell during COVID uh, at the start of the book and then, like, link that through to this broad idea that actually smell is really, really important in all of these different ways that we maybe haven't thought about before. So it actually becomes a jumping-off point for our theorization.
2: Yeah, and, and maybe um, even as we have uh, been working on this, I've noticed that there's there's quite a few new um, publications coming out about aroma and smell. so it feels like it's quite an exciting time as um, you know more attention is is paid to this phenomena so um, but I won't I won't say anything more than that at this question
1: <laughs> uh, Right. Uh, so my next question is how do you think the mobility of olfactory sense make social worlds? Yeah, so this is, um, I suppose, the major claim in our book, um, which is really to kind of
0: try and hone in on what it is about smell that is interesting to theorise. I think, you know, we kind of took the starting point that the argument for smell in some ways has already been won. You know, the sensory revolution that occurred in the humanities and the social sciences, this kind of critique of Western oculocentrism, pointing out how important other senses are our book kind of enters the field after that so like you know all of that work has been done and brilliant work by many theorists we kind of wanted to work out what particularly it was about smell that was so compelling for us and why we kept talking about it frankly Gwyn. um mm-hmm. and and so we tried to think about the actual qualities of it um and one of the other ones we thought about is you know this smell has this real quality to get beneath your skin in a way it has this ability to cross boundaries um you know once if, if there's an odor there's a, a a negative smell you know you can't you can't get rid of it once you've smelt it you can't extinguish it you can't close your eyes as you do with sight you can only kind of reframe it reodorize it deodorize it you can only write over it um and you know it also as I said had that boundary calling round you crossing qualities right it, it, it invades you in some ways and so we kind of feel that in you know you know how smell has that kind of inherently social quality um and because it does this thing because it has this inherently social quality it makes it a really interesting force therefore in shaping and determining things like the category of asia which i think gwyn was really great in bringing that kind of theorization about asian history and, and how we even think about asia as a
2: category to this book
0: wouldn't you say gwyn
2: um I, well I, I think it's uh, been great to work in, in an interdisciplinary team so you know the um the knowledge, knowledge that hannah has on the anthropological side was was um really important uh and there's um there's some really important uh, well i think there's the anthropological perspectives in the book as well, but then, um, I guess, from my own background in history, um, thinking about, and I, I know we're gonna talk about this a little bit more um, in the rest of the interview, but the um, colonialist aspects of history, and um, and I guess the first three chapters starting with um, kind of a historical basis um, in East Asia um, was also important for for this book. Which is in a in a series on history as well.
1: Uh, very very interesting. So, would you say that a study of sense uh, gives us insights to understand how the West is seen as different from the rest of the world?
2: Well, well, ironically, I think uh, that yeah, a study of sense on Asia um, really does give us insights into understanding the West um, and how how the West is perceived as well from other parts of the world. So or it's not even ironic really, is, is it? But um, Kelvin Lowe um, particularly has talked about the need for more studies on sensors and on Asia. And um, so being aware of that, I think um, understanding the ins and outs and the complexities um, are, are really important to understanding, um, the West and the East and, and those categories that actually need to be broken down, um, a lot. So, um, if I, if I might just briefly talk about the chapter, which, which I also put in for this volume, um, it was about Endor Shusaku, who is a fairly well-known Japanese writer for his stories of historical fiction and, um, especially in the Christian history of Japan as a Catholic himself. Um, but of course, one part of his story is coming to terms with traveling to France as a um, young foreign student. And this is where he studied. And so his writing particularly picks up on perspectives on um, the East and the West um, through the lens of his protagonists. And so, you know, for some, in some cases, he writes through the perspective of French um, protagonists in Japan. Uh, and so, within my chapter, I talk about, uh, say, for example, the idea that that the Westerners stunk of butter, so kusai. and um, <laughs> so I guess in some ways this was an Occidentalist view um, of particular smells. Um, but I also draw on uh, Mary Douglas and Julia Christieva in thinking about dirt and and um, the permeation of of scent um, and odors um, that sometimes you know can make make people even gag. So, um, so these were some of the things that I was I was um, picking up in in that chapter. Did you want to say okay. anything else, Hannah, on that?
0: No, no, I think that's great. I just I think it's interesting. You know, one of the things we were writing against in this book, in many ways, was kind of the, the huge amount of you know prevalent stereotypes about Asia and smell that you know from the colonial mm. period up until today that, you know, a- Asia or Asians, Asian communities are smelly or odorous, you mm. know, are associated with lots of different smells. Um, and I think it's, it's great to have those inclusions in the book that talk about the ways in which the West is similar, is similarly stereotyped yeah. in different ways, um, yeah. as associated with different smells that we as Westerners or myself as a Westerner <laughs> might not necessarily be aware of. Yeah.
1: Yeah, very, very interesting again. But, you know, when we are talking about aromas, we do have to talk about colonialism as as well. So I wanted to understand the linkages, and it's something that, you know, the book talks about. So how do aromas help us make sense of colonialism as a historical project?
2: Yeah, um, I think that's a, that's a very interesting question. Um, and, yeah, I think in the volume we are attempting to critique the idea of a, I guess, a Western sensory superiority to some extent, and there's certainly um, references to that throughout. Um, I I guess that the, as I mentioned, the first three chapters are that historical background within East Asia um, that actually describes a long history of awareness of the importance of scent and, uh, you know, approaching it through perhaps poetry or um, philosophy in order to to really um, look at the intricacies of how it's understood. Um, and uh, I guess as well, um, then in parts two and three that we're, that we're focusing on case studies in various contexts and um, stressing that, I guess, um, oculocentrism has suggested scent and odor may be relegated as debased or primal, but at other times it might be trying to rid ourselves of smells. Um, and so you, in uh, chapter 10, for example, our contributor, Ruth Tulson um, writes about the attempts to evade smell in the face of death. Um, I don't know, um, Hannah might like to say something about that as well. Uh, but just, just one more, um, Shivani Kapoor's chapter on the Dalit autobiographical writing, um, there's the situation of colonial India, which is not really very explicit in this chapter, but it's I think it's implicit and that there's, that she actually powerfully shows how a politics of caste and naming that draws on a, what she calls a metaphorical smell of untouchability, um, and then actual smells like leather, um, uh, you know are, are a part of what she's talking about, while there's Brahmanical sensibilities normalised in colonialism, and so I guess it's it's talking about the complexities of colonialism in in that Indian context, um, and also Japan where the samurai were politically the upper caste, and um, in the the fiction I'm talking about how the peasants were known by their smell, so um, so I hope that's That's making some um, sense.
0: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is looking across those different contexts and the kind of different arenas of colonialism um, across and within and throughout Asia is also, I think, for us to think about the ways in which like smell becomes part of that colonial project Um, and, you know, thinking about that colonialism as, as an attempt really to control not only, you know, people's people's minds and their politics but also their bodies um and so many cases we find in in these examples in the book about you know real policies of hygiene and sanitation that are imposed um as well as those hierarchies of value that Gwyn's talked about um and so there's a lot of kind of smell work being done on populations through about you know ideas of washing and dressing and cleaning um that then feed into these, as, as Gwen mentioned, these hierarchies of value where some people's bodies and some people's smells, some people's tastes are really elevated above others as a means to like, you know, create those cultural hierarchies that then become part of the structures of colonialism, um, many of which are around today. And we, you know, these legacies and ongoing, ongoing projects of colonialism are kind of where the book confronts that within smell.
1: Right, and I think um, the question of race and racial prejudices are also connected to, you know, colonialism. So what does smell mm. tell us about race as well as, you know, prejudices?
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, um, well, I, I wonder uh, if I can mention another chapter in the book uh, by Hu and Jiru's, um, which is mainly focused on, I think, Malaysia and um, Thailand. And um, it picks up on the example of durians, uh, which are, of course, <laughs> very well known for um, how powerfully they they smell. Um, but I think uh, they point out in this chapter that the the um, co- colonializers in this um, context originally would would look on and could not understand how the locals loved this particular fruit. Um, because of the the very strong smell that it it made, and I actually wondered if I could read you a little bit from um, from the book if if that was okay.
1: Yes, yes, sure, please.
2: Yeah, so just just on page ninety one, um, they they had some very very interesting kind of ways of of um, uh, talking about the smell of the durian and how it's been understood um, across different. Um, or, or from different perspectives. So even going back to Admiral Zhang He, um, the Chinese admiral who sailed down into Southeast Asia, um, so 1407, who wrote that the foul smell resembles that of putrid beef. Inside there are 14 to 15 lumps as big as chestnuts of milk-white flesh, very sweet and delicious to eat. And then... We have um, early on uh, actually the there's some Western accounts that were quite positive about this the scent of the durian. So um, 1583 Portuguese Garcia de Alata, explaining that it uh, was the most excellent fruit in the Orient, and uh, and then during the colonial late colonial period, the Europeans really um, suggested that it, it stunk. So um, there was, for example, um, they called it strong or moldy cheese, vomit, unwashed socks, rotten garbage, decomposing corpse, and then a dragon's breath enough to make some people gag. <laughs> um, so, so I thought that this was worth reading just to, just to pick up some of the um, discussion on, on the smells. Um But I I guess I I think that this chapter is really interesting because it's very um, it's thinking about the transnational um, situation, and and it um, you know picks up as well um, Chinese tourists coming in and trying to get the durian because because it's prized and um, and certainly. a uh, uh, different discourse to what the general, the Western discourse has been about this fruit. Um, mm. Hannah, did you it want to say anything else?
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I think it picks up on that way thinking about race and racial prejudices in which um, smell is so immediate and so embodied. And in some ways, it seems so natural or you know essential to to how we encounter something. Um, mm. you know, it seems in many ways a cultural and a historical, right? That that durians smell like something and that's how they've always smelled in all contexts to all people. But mm. obviously, you know, how we encounter the world through aroma is a product of um, you know, our particular place in time and how we've been educated and um, Gwyn and I, for example, are both from Australia, which is uh, quite famous for things like Vegemite and other smelly um, <laughs> delicacies that, that I'm sure quite offend uh, foreign noses and, and sensibilities. Um, and so it really reminds us of the ways in which our, our bodies are particularly located in cultures and times and, and places and and, and so when we think, therefore, about racial prejudices, I, th- I suppose it reminds us the ways in which they are also constructed in, in an embodied manner. Um, and we, we kind of encounter other peoples through all of those kind of histories that we bring to them. Um, but, but perhaps because it is seen as so natural and so immediate, it's almost more dangerous because it's more difficult to point out. It's it's harder to point to as a thing that is constructed by a particular ideology. Um, it seems so obvious and therefore perhaps is more difficult to deconstruct.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, okay. um, sorry.
1: No, please, please continue Gwen.
2: Oh, uh, there was, there was just one other example I, I wanted to mention here. And that was, um, Aubrey Tang, uh, who is a film studies, um, contributor and she she was so she was talking about some films uh and i just thought that it's it was interesting how um crazy rich asians she um deconstructs in the chapter uh for its orientalism um where you know that all of the people appear um as asians um, in a certain way but that the asian american is raised as as a little bit above the women from from um, the local Singapore, I think it is. And so um, that was perhaps another another example, um, although actually it's not not connected directly to the, the smell in this case.
1: Right. So uh, again, you know, in your volume, do you think there is a contestation of Orientalist olfactory tropes? And if you could give one or two examples to explain that.
0: Yeah, I hope that there is. We kind of grapple with this orientalist olfactory trope in the beginning and kind of point out the dual nature of it. Right, that it has this kind of double focus. And on the one hand, that historically and today there is a construction of Asia um, as as a smelly, you know, a fragrant. You know, sometimes that's positive, sometimes that negative. That's negative. It's perfumed. It's fragrant. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes it's it's, it's smelly or it's unwashed, unclean. And that's kind of one predominant trope, right, that Asia is smelly, that Asia has a strong smell. But on the other hand, um, you have kind of tropes of Asia as as lacking a smell, as being too sanitised, um, as being uh, too clean. So you see that in things like um you know, statements about, you know, Asian body odor or Singapore being incredibly clean and incredibly um, deodorized, right, that it's over, like, hyper-hygienic in certain ways. Um, And and what we try to do, hopefully, in this book is to show that both of these are tropes, right, that they they are produced by particular sets of ideologies um, and particular places and times and are used for particular projects of power, right, and that, you know instead of you know leaning away I suppose from engaging in the study of smell in Asia what we actually need to do is to really focus on the details and focus on the complexities of how smell actually exists on the ground how it's encountered um so that we don't just continue to either reproduce tropes or or ignore them that we we try and you know complicate that picture and and put it in perspective I hope that's you know what we end up doing
2: yep and can I just add to that as well? Um, I think the uh, chapter one, right at the, the start, um, Lorenzo Marinucci uh, writes a chapter called On a Trail of Incense, where uh, he discusses, I guess, olfactory paradigms in Japanese culture and um, really contests the um, orientalist tropes up front by a quote from Lafcadio Hearn, who was a European in Japan, Um, talking about his first visit to a Buddhist temple where there was strange and weird smells. And and so um, Marinucci attempts to to deconstruct this and um, he does this initially talking about how um, that kind of oculocentrism comes from Greek philosophy, but then he also um, uses the Japanese concepts, um, including ni'oi, where... Ni'oi in Jap- Japan um, is not just scent, but it can also be colour, colourful. So there's a synesthetic sense. Um, and I think the, that's, the idea of synesthesia comes up a number of times. Um, I think in Aubrey Tang's work on Hong Kong and also in Saki Tanada's work on, on Lombok in Indonesia as well. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I back up exactly what, what Hannah said in terms of, um, you know, hopefully this is coming through and, um, and through the complexities of of um, looking at these different examples.
1: Right. Uh, I would also want to know how do we contend with visual and or olfactory metaphors when talking about cultural contact and mobility?
2: When talking about cultural contact and mobility?
1: Yes,
0: yes. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Can you just rephrase that? I think there was a moment of cutout. Yeah.
1: Oh, uh, you missed my question. Yes. Sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So I wanted to ask, uh, how do we contend with visual and or olfactory metaphors when we are talking about cultural contact and mobility? Yeah. It's one of the
0: really interesting, um, I suppose, challenges that we had in the book was, you know, obviously smell is an incredibly difficult thing to find about. Um, and you know, as Gwyn, I think, said there, often there is layers of um, metaphor and meaning, right? So if it's the idea of nioi, where it's a, a, a both a colour and also a, a, a smell, um, or in other contexts, it's sometimes where smell and taste are really, you know, tightly interwoven, as, for example, in, in the idea of anosmia in COVID, right, that, that losing your smell would, would lead to losing... Um, taste Um, uh, or as you said I think in your question as well about the visual element of that you know some of these cultural constructs that we talk about and specific examples you know smell is accompanied by incredibly complex um, visual representations and attempts to create kind of systematized um, methods of describing smell so for example um, in the ancient practice of Uh, incense in Japan, but also throughout Asia, throughout areas of China, for example, and Korea, um, you see these incredibly complicated visual charts that are linked to poetry, which are then linked to imagery, which are then linked to kind of symbols in order to describe an array of smells. and you know, part of us, I think, part of us when we kind of maybe wish that we could have made this book a kind of scratch and sniff um, <laughs> edition. I think, so I think we talked about that a few times. We do have a think about that. It's a very expensive apparently. I don't know, yes. I don't know if it would be entirely a pleasant um experience for our readers. Um but definitely like, you know, we, we had to lean in, in many ways on, on visual representations or linguistic representations in words in order to try and capture that smell, because, um, you know, we can't transport you there and into the experience yourself, unfortunately.
2: Yeah. And maybe, um, as well as all that, um, and I think just, just what you mentioned before as well, Hannah, that, um, you know, taking bodies seriously, um, is, Mm. is really important and, I guess a part of that is also um, uh, taking the, the um, Indigenous culture often, which which has a um, kind of more knowledge in, in different ways um, about, about the place, about the location. And so I guess that takes me back to Saki Tanada because um, where she's talking about Lombok and the um, Sasak um, community, the Indigenous community there, um, which is hybridic as well because there's there's the islamic influence but but by taking that seriously and and listening to um the wisdom that that is there um then that's another way of of thinking about both the i guess the visual as well as the smell um
1: mm.
2: yeah, yeah so yeah
1: right so uh, could you please also comment on how the book is structured
2: you go Hannah.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, the structure of the book, apologies, so it's just a lag there. Um so yeah, the structure of the book basically, as I said, this is an edited collection. And what we we tried to do is is structure it not um by region of Asia um or by country, but um instead thematically, because you know, a central part of this book is is thinking beyond, I suppose beyond or across those geographical lines that, that sometimes divide up our study of, of smell and culture. Um, so the first part of the book um, considers poetics and philosophies. Um, it's very, I suppose, heavily influenced by historical studies and also in particular a theme emerged um, around the idea of incense. And we have chapters um, looking at Japan and China, particularly medieval China and medieval Chinese poetry. Part two, uh, making sensory boundaries, talks really about these moments of confrontation between different sensory cultures or different clashes. Um, and there's chapters here around um, Malaysia from um, Gwyn about Japan West, as well as um, studies in, in Hindi Dalit autobiographies, and finally um, film studies. Studies around um, you know um, Aubrey Tang's collection um, and contribution around uh, the Blind Detective. Film. And then in the final part of the collection, so there's three parts. In the final part, bodies, life, work and death, um, we bring it back to the body and a- about that important kind of role that um, the, you know, life to death or life cycle plays in, in articulating uh, smells. So we begin with a chapter on pregnancy uh, in Lombok by Saki Tanada and then move towards studies of, of um, work and waste in, in contemporary China, by Adam Leibn and, and finally end with, with death and a study of um, Singaporean funeral parlours by Ruth Olsen. Um, so hopefully it's a, it's a varied collection, but but one that kind of takes a more thematic approach to smell as opposed to a geographical or historical one.
1: Right, uh, thank you, thank you for that. Last question, uh, what other stories or research topics do you think you did not get to include in the book? Mm, great question.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think there's so many actually. It's really hard to know where to start. Um, I certainly think that um, you know, uh the I wondered about the the Mughal Empire. Um uh, but yeah, but I, I mean I that... hmm.
0: I was gonna say I uh, think you know You know, we're not trying in this book. It's very difficult, obviously, to be comprehensive about um, an area of the world as varied um, and with so much history as Asia. Um, So it's certainly not, um, you know, it's not comprehensive. It's not an exhaustive um, collection. And there are things, you know, empires that we didn't cover, religious groups that we didn't cover, histories of things like the Silk Road of natural resources, um, that we weren't able to include. Um, I suppose for Gwen and I, we, we almost hope that it's a departure point um, for people who are beginning to think about smell and theorise smell and incorporate smell into their work um, and maybe by reading it they can then reflect on their own corner of Asia or area of the world that they're studying um, and contribute additional, you know, papers and and books around that in the future because, you um, I think almost what we've found is that almost every aspect of our lives is touched by smell. So it's almost an infinite number of chapters and inclusions that we could have had. Agreed.
1: Well, uh, thank you so much to uh, both of you for talking to me about your book. It's a great uh, and fascinating read. And I hope that our listeners enjoy the conversation. And uh, for those who have not read the book yet, please pick up a copy. Uh, Thank you, Gwen and Hannah, for joining me today.
2: I uh, think thank thanks you so, so much for Um and also, you know, I think that the when the soft cover becomes available, we're hoping that it'll be at a very reasonable price. And uh, but there is an ebook as as well at the moment as well. So thank you. Thank you both of you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you much thank for the conversation. You.